Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 149, Aaron Collins, Evidence Rules for Decarceration. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, in an Excited Utterance first, we recorded live from UConn Law School at a symposium hosted by the Connecticut Public Interest Law Journal entitled Evidence Through a Critical Lens. The editors asked us to have a live podcast session as part of the symposium lunch program, and I was happy to oblige. The guest for this unusual episode is Aaron Collins, who is a professor of law at the University of Richmond. Aaron teaches evidence, criminal procedure, and other related courses, and her scholarship focuses on reforms to the criminal justice system. Our podcast today focuses on Aaron's article, Evidence Rules for Decarceration, which was published in the Fordham Urban Law Journal. In it, Aaron argues that conversations about mass incarceration have thus far neglected the rules of evidence. Although the overwhelming majority of criminal cases end in pleas, which would seem to precede any concerns about evidence law, the shadow that is cast by the evidentiary rules can loom large. In particular, evidentiary rules that allow a jury to learn about a defendant's prior bad acts may press defendants away from trial and toward plea bargains. And on a broader level, by taking a critical approach, the article tries to focus more on substantive outcomes rather than merely questions of proof. My conversation with Aaron explores these character rules, their effects on outcomes, and more conceptually, just what we should expect from our evidentiary rules. Well, welcome everyone to this special recording of the Excited Utterance podcast, live from UConn School of Law and hosted by the Connecticut Public Interest Law Journal. I'm Ed Chang, the host of the Excited Utterance podcast. And my guest today is Professor Aaron Collins from the University of Richmond. Aaron, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's my first podcast. It's live. There's apparently maybe 8,000 people listening. What could, what could go wrong? <laughs> so your article, and I think the conference generally, begins with staking out an interesting position, which is that the evidentiary rules can be an important medium through which we can discuss or address mass incarceration. In particular, even though you acknowledge that most of the criminal cases these days are decided by pleas, you think that evidence remains important and that substantive law is not the only place to look. So why is that? Well, I think for a few reasons. One is some cases do go to trial. And so for those cases that do go to trial, the evidence rules are very important in figuring out what information is given to the fact finder. But for that vast number, and I'm thinking particularly in the criminal legal system, which is where my past practice experience and my scholarship focuses, 
The vast majority of convictions are the result of plea deals, but I think many would agree that those pleas are negotiated in the shadow of trial, and a big part of that shadow, the shadow that is cast by trial, is what evidence is going to come in or is not. So I think the assumptions about what evidence will come in should this go to trial are very informative in thinking about how, whether, and when somebody should take a plea or decide to go to trial. So let me drill down a little bit. The primary focus of your piece is on character evidence and what you call the broken promise of the character evidence rules, the criminal law system. Let me give you a chance to expound on what you mean by broken promise and why excluding character evidence is an important part of maintaining a just system. Sure. So kind of the starting premise of my article is that those of us who care about decarceration and abolition should start to take seriously what happens when cases do go to trial and what happens specifically under the rules of evidence. Because I think it is a site that's been overlooked as a target for reform. There's lots of work on policing. There's lots of work on sentencing. There's lots of work on prosecution. And, and evidence law hasn't been taken seriously as a focus for reform. And in my article, I use this idea of the broken promise as just one example to show the ways that the rules of evidence can work to the detriment of folks who are accused of crimes and to the benefit of the prosecutor and the state who are seeking through the criminal process to get a conviction. And the promise I'm talking about is the promise that underlies what's now embodied in Rule 404, but the rule against character evidence. And it's a promise, and this was referenced in an earlier panel. It's been articulated in many cases, but the one I think about is People versus Zakowitz from the New York State Court of Appeals. And then Chief Judge of the New York State Court of Appeals, Cardozo said, the principle that underlies the 404 ban on character evidence is that when a defendant stands before a jury, they should start their life afresh. So essentially, the principle is that we want a fact finder in a criminal case to assess the evidence and judge a person for what they're accused of doing, not for who they are. And that's the common law insight that leads us to Rule 404, which is the rule against character evidence. So just for those who aren't well-versed in evidence, right, the rule is essentially we don't allow any party, but particularly what I'm focused on is the prosecution in a criminal case, at least in theory, right, um, to introduce evidence that someone has a certain character trait or to introduce evidence of a specific act that shows that somebody has a certain character trait to suggest that they acted in accordance with that character on a certain date and therefore have a propensity to commit a certain kind of crime. We don't want the jurors to engage in that kind of reasoning. We want them to focus not on who someone is, but what they did. And so I use this principle, this promise, which is central, one of the fundamental tenets of evidence law, as a starting point explaining what the promise is and then highlighting ways that I believe this promise is broken repeatedly for folks who are accused of criminal actions. Yeah, so I'd like to get into at least some of those examples, time permitting. Let me start with Rule 413 through 415. These are the rules that effectively allow us to ignore the propensity rules, at least under the federal system, in cases involving sexual assault and child molestation. Tell us a little bit more about how those rules contribute to mass incarceration 
and the concerns that you raise in the paper. Sure. So, I mean, the proper application of Rule 404 would, if somebody is accused of, for example, committing robbery, the government shouldn't be allowed to introduce proof that they committed robbery on a prior date to prove they're the kind of person who commits robbery, to prove they have a propensity to act in this way, to prove that they committed the robbery they're charged with, right? Except we have, through rules 413 through 415, carved out explicit exceptions to this rule federally, and it's been adopted in a number of states, that when somebody is accused of particular types of crimes, specifically sexual assault or child molestation, we do allow propensity reasoning. So in other words, the promise that you will not be judged by what you've done in the past is explicitly broken in cases involving sexual assault and child molestation. The reasoning for adopting these rules, first of all, the passage of these rules was deeply political. These rules were passed in a way that circumvented the Rules Enabling Act, which is the traditional rulemaking process for the federal rules of evidence. They were adopted by Congress as part of the 1994 crime control bill. They were actually across the board critiqued because we claim so centrally that this tenant that we don't allow character evidence to support a conviction, people were concerned, people were outraged. Even then-Senator Biden, who was the primary sponsor of the Violence Against Women Act, contained in the same crime control bill, spoke out against Rule 413 and 414 as breaking this fundamental idea that somebody should basically be judged for what they're accused of doing, not for who they are. Nevertheless, these rules were passed. And so I, I identify these rules as one way that the rules are explicitly and intentionally broken in order to help secure convictions. And the justifications for the rules are twofold. One, that the propensity inference, the logic, tends to be true in these kinds of cases. In other words, and these are not really supported empirically, but the assumption is that people who commit sexual assault tend to recidivate in this same way, tend to commit these crimes again and again, same with child molestation. And second, that and I think this is what I think many would say is the, the real reason behind these rules is that these are hard to prosecute cases. And because they're hard to prosecute cases, the government sometimes doesn't get the result that they seek, which is a conviction. And so therefore, we need to relax evidence rules in these cases to allow in evidence that's quite persuasive to the fact finder in order to help get that result that the government seeks, which is a conviction. So this is one way that the rules are changed explicitly with an eye towards helping the carceral apparatus through the securing of convictions. So I'd like to push back on the critique and pursue that second line of inquiry that you made. So for years, I thought that rules 413 through 415 were basically an unprincipled exception that targeted groups of people that we simply didn't like. But I've had some second thoughts of late, and I think it's particularly in the wake of the Me Too movement, where sexual assault complainants often found themselves deriving a lot of strength from multiple accusations from other people. So banding together does, in fact, bolster the testimony. And you know, it's kind of the theme of the conference here, which is how do we empower the disempowered through evidence rules? seems that 413, 414 might be a mechanism for doing that. Still unfair and undesirable. That's a good question, and my answer is yes. Me Too has brought to the surface 
and made us confront many things that many of us already know, right? Which is that many instances of sexual assault are underreported. Many people who have experienced sexual assault are not believed, right? But the thing about Me Too is it, it's all happened. It's continued to happen despite the fact that we've had 413 through 415, right? 413 through 415 have been around since the mid-1990s. That didn't solve the problem, right? It shows that people who have experienced sexual assault still aren't achieving justice in ways that they want or need. The continued myopic focus on responding to harm with the criminal system is not keeping people safe from sexual assault or child molestation. So I think in the big picture, it's showing that this problem persists despite tweaking evidence rules. It also shows that a problem that these rules are trying to address, which is the credibility contest that often is decided in favor of whoever is more powerful, and that usually is a white cis man, right? Those credibility problems persist despite 413 through 415. So I think it makes us confront the idea that the credibility contest can't be fixed necessarily by changing evidence rules. And I think part of the problem remains a societal problem of bias, prejudice, stereotype by decision makers, by lawmakers, by jurors, by judges, who are the ones who are empowered to decide what happened and who are empowered to decide who to believe. And those problems persist. And then the final thing I'll say is that I want to also distinguish the ability and power to meet people where they are and to believe them just based on their word out in life as friends, as mentors, as community members versus the consequences that flow from the criminal system, which are different. You can show up for people who have been harmed in your community, in your schools, in your households in ways that advance and show and underscore that you believe them. And there can be power for everyone in many people coming forward. I don't necessarily think that means that therefore we should do the same thing in the criminal courtroom when the consequences are conviction and incarceration. I think if we have this promise to folks that you are judged based on what you're alleged to have done, not who you are, and that we don't allow propensity reasoning, I think everyone, especially in the hard cases, everyone should benefit from that protection. I think we should resist the urge to exceptionalize hard, hard cases and essentially reduce the burden on the government to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. I'd like to turn to Rule 609, which is another area that forms part of your critique. Rule 609 we've talked about a lot today. It's the rule allowing prior convictions to be used to impeach defendants, actually all witnesses, but defendants most problematically by suggesting that they have a character for untruthfulness. The interesting thing about 609, I think, is that I think most of us might agree that the use of felonies to show character for untruthfulness has a kind of dubious logic and has a dubious history. The problem is that I think elimination is, I don't know, I think Julie Simon Kerr and, and Anna Roberts might have something to say about that, that they, they might say that it is possible. But I'm going to operate on the, the notion that it might not be possible to completely eliminate that rule. 
What should we do about that rule? Are there things that we can do short of elimination? One possibility that I think in my mind is to force or somehow encourage judges to simply apply the balancing tests that are different in that space more rigorously than they perhaps have been. I wish I could, since we're live, tag team in some of my colleagues here who are the true experts on this topic. But I'll just articulate how my 609 critique connects to my larger paper because it's another instance, right, in which folks, and particularly I'm focused on folks who are accused of crimes, when they testify in their own defense, they can be impeached with their past convictions. Under the dubious theory, the theory that I think many of us would agree is weak at best, that the fact of criminal conviction tells us something about someone's character for truthfulness. And it can have real impacts on keeping people from testifying or when they do, jurors tend to use this evidence for a variety of different reasons. The question is what to do about it. I guess I wouldn't want to take complete abolition of that rule off the table. I think Professor Simon Kerr and, and Professor Roberts' work has shown that there are jurisdictions that have taken it off the table, so that would be my first best solution. Second would be severely limiting the instances in which it can be used, and again, I'm drawing directly from their articles and their proposals which is saying maybe not at all for criminal defendants or anyone, but if at all, then really taking seriously the notion that the, the theory of relevance tells us something about someone's character for truthfulness, so we should limit it only to convictions that involve some kind of untruthful act like perjury. But short of those restrictions on the rule itself, I think you're right. I think we need to expect more of judges in the balancing and expect more in the parties who want to use the convictions to impeach to articulate how does this particular conviction tell us something about this particular person's character for truthfulness? How does the fact that this person was convicted of possessing a weapon tell us anything about whether or not they're truthful on the stand? Because that's what's missing in courtrooms a lot. And that's how judges just come to this kind of quick and they'll say they're doing some balancing, and then they'll say, okay, well, maybe we'll just say felony. But we're missing the part where the party, and usually the government here, has to actually articulate a theory of relevance about how it bears on character for truthfulness. I would love to see more of that, and then judges taking that more seriously and really applying all of the different factors they're supposed to apply. I think that could lead to some better decisions, but I'm not giving up hope on complete abolition of this rule. I'd like to return to your opening thesis, which is the focus on evidence rules to try to address mass incarceration. And you chose in the article to focus on the character evidence rules. But if we're taking this seriously, I think that there are other evidentiary rules that are possibly on the chopping block. And one was mentioned earlier by Bennett Capers, which was 410. 410 encourages pleas. I think pleas lead to easier prosecutions and therefore mass incarceration. So why the focus on character and not 410? Or maybe you'd like to add 410 to your list. Yeah, so, so my focus on this idea of a broken promise was just one framing technique because, I mean, all of the rules could be in this critique, right? I think maybe most of the rules can be interpreted and applied in a way that is consistent with power dynamics and it kind of helps the prosecution certainly more than it helps the defense. So it's not meant to be exhaustive. I think we can look at other promises that are made to folks who are accused of crimes, like the promise 
implicit or explicit that you won't be more likely to be convicted if you are black or brown, right? I think that promise is broken all over the place in ways that have been illumined by the scholars in the room here. But 410, I think, would be another interesting site of reform, though I, I have to say, so 410 is the rule that says that proof of plea negotiations that result in pleas that are withdrawn or a no contest plea or that don't result in any plea at all cannot be admissible if someone goes to trial. I guess I'm, I'm a little curious to know how much of an impact that actually has on someone's decision because, and I'll admit this is hearsay within hearsay, but a long time ago when I was first prepping for evidence, Professor Golden kindly shared many of her materials, and in her materials is a reference to a conversation with a federal prosecutor who said essentially, if there's no 410 waiver, it's not plea bargaining. Because 410 only applies to conversations that are considered plea bargaining. I think it's routine, or at least I hear it's routine, that federally, many prosecutors before they will bargain require a 410 waiver. So we're already doing a workaround of that. So I guess I'm cynical that it really has a lot of teeth, though I'm open to considering that it does. But I'm with you that I think we need to reconsider all of the different processes and systems and policies we have, including Rule 410, that plea bargaining is a social good and that we must keep plea bargaining as a central part of our system and allow it in certain ways in order to keep our system functioning. This pervades criminal procedure adjudication, which I also teach and write about. I think we should revisit all of that because I think the more we just facilitate plea bargaining, the more we're working in injustice and lessening the burden on the government to actually have the evidence to back up its allegations. Here's my other broader question for you, and it, I think it has to do with a tension that I sense in the article. So part of the article, and I think, in fact, part of this symposium is really about emphasizing outcomes. In, in your case, it's the outcome of reducing incarceration. And in fact, there's this great line in your article which says, quote, we should start by being honest about how particular rules shape outcomes into predictable patterns. And yet, at the same time, I think there's an emphasis in the paper, I think quite understandably so, of improving accuracy. And that gets to this Long-standing debate, and you talked about this tension earlier in the conference, between accuracy and other concerns. I think Professor Simon Kerr talked about it as being justice or fairness. Where do you draw that balance, or how do you think that balance can be best done? I don't know if there's a perfect equation, but I will say the equation we now have is out of balance. I think there is an assumption that what we should be seeking is primarily accurate, truthful outcomes. And I think, as I, as I alluded to on the panel earlier today, the rules aren't just about accurate outcomes, they're also about just determination. So I do care about outcomes. I think accuracy is also an important value, though I would also posit that what we see in the criminal system, the people who are brought into the system and prosecuted is not an accurate glimpse of the population of folks who have caused harm and who are harmed themselves. I think it's a slice and it's a specific slice that is taken in the context of a system that has deep roots in white supremacy um, of who gets charged with crimes and who comes to this system. So I think we need to think about accurate outcomes but we don't have an accurate sample of what is actually happening in the world. 
And another one I'll just add into there is not just accuracy and it's not just outcomes, but it's also the integrity of the process by which we arrive at those outcomes. And again, there's principles in criminal procedure that we're supposed to care, not society wins, the court said in Brady, not just when the guilty are convicted, but when the process is fair. And I think we've lost sight of the fairness of process when we're interpreting and applying a lot of these evidence rules. Final question for you. What's next for you on this project or otherwise? Oh my gosh. Well, first, I just want to stay in conversation with and kind of keep the momentum and the energy that has been produced through this wonderful symposium because I think together we can generate a lot of amazing scholarship conversations and actual meaningful reform. I would love to get involved with on the ground reform efforts to change some of these problems that we've all been observing. And meanwhile, I'm working on a paper with Ngozi Okidaba from BU about the obsession within the critique of algorithms in the criminal legal system on getting accurate outcomes and kind of the collapsing of notion of fairness into accuracy and equally accurate results or errors. And what we're doing is actually we're looking to evidence law as a model of how a system can, at least in theory, if not in practice, value accuracy and other values like justice and fairness when assessing what should happen. So I'm excited to see where, where that leads and I'm excited to see where the rest of this conference leads. Well, Aaron, thanks for being a good sport and agreeing to do this first ever live Excited Utterance podcast. Great having you on the show and thank you to everyone here at UConn Law for being a terrific audience. Thank you so much for having me. I survived. The critical lens offered by Erin in her article and by others at the conference can indeed offer new insights into evidence law. For example, there are some policy choices made in the evidentiary rules, like the preference for settlement and plea bargaining, that have become almost received wisdom. And perhaps we should rethink these values in light of learned experience. There's nothing inherent in the field of evidence that suggests that we should necessarily be helping to process cases quickly and efficiently for the prosecution, especially when doing so can reinforce existing power dynamics, sometimes to the detriment of accuracy. But while I think a critical lens can offer a useful perspective at times, I have some significant reservations about reorienting evidence to focus on substantive outcomes and away from the more neutral goal of factual accuracy. Here I'm defining accuracy as the empirical inquiry into what happened in the past. In other words, what happened on a particular date and time at an intersection like Main and Elm Street. For one thing, as I've actually written in response to law and economic scholars who have also tried to reorient evidence along substantive lines, achieving accuracy is an incredibly difficult goal as it is by itself. To have evidence pursue substantive policy goals, invariably controversial ones, will only make what is already a difficult task virtually impossible. 
For another thing, while evidence could help with substantive policy, do we really want it to? If evidence law becomes explicitly outcome-driven with no aspiration to objectivity, then what remains to protect marginalized groups? What will prevent the powerful from overtly tilting the scales without even the semblance of neutrality? Rules 413 through 415, for example, may have begun as a tool for prosecuting certain kinds of suspects. But because it was drafted as a neutral rule, it then became a rule that empowered previously marginalized Me Too victims to successfully accuse their more influential and powerful attackers. So for these reasons, it just seems wiser to me to focus on getting the facts right first. Then we can debate what we should substantively do with those facts. In any event, Aaron's paper provides plenty of food for thought. I would like to thank again the editors of the Connecticut Public Interest Law Journal for hosting this episode, symposium editors Taylor Ann Vibert and Alyssa Westner, and Excited Utterance alumna Julia Simon Kerr for their hospitality, and all of the participants for a thought-provoking symposium. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the Texas A&M University School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Recording at UConn Law School was done by Michael Len, and background music is provided by Kirsten Castle-Greer, Felix Wong, and Alex Crew. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.